Welcome to the North American Waterfowl Podcast. I'm Brett Amundsen. This podcast is dedicated to the ducks and geese that we all love. To kick off this new show, we've got a series of podcasts about the craziest band stories we've ever heard. If you've got a great story, let us know about it. Maybe it'll end up on this podcast. I recorded these interviews in 2021, and we've been a little busy with other projects, but we're happy to finally get them out to you. I hope you enjoy them. When it comes to bands, there may be none more revered than Jack Minor. This podcast talks to Tim Dobson and Joe Vermeulen from the Jack Minor Migratory Bird Sanctuary. This is the North American Waterfowl Show. Brought to you by DRC Calls. Duck, goose, and crane calls made by the North American Goose Calling Champion, Corey Loeffler. Learn more at drccalls.com. And Mid-Migration Outfitters. Guided duck and goose hunts in western Minnesota. Learn more at midmigrationoutfitters.com and fish on forever. I hunt and always will. We can't talk about banding birds and migratory research without the name Jack Miner coming up. And Jack Miner can be credited with pioneering the way migratory bird research is still being done today more than 100 years later. I wanted to learn a little bit more about Jack Miner and the program and what's still being done at the Migratory Bird Foundation. So I've asked a few of the guys uh, to join us here on the show. We've got Tim Dobson, the Director of Marketing for the Jack Miner Migratory Bird Foundation with us. Tim, how you doing? Good, thank you, Brett. Thanks for coming on the show. And we also have uh, Joe Vermeulen with us too. Joe, how you doing? Doing just great. How's things up your way? Uh, very good. It's starting to warm up finally a little bit. So it's uh, the, the weather is finally changing for us here. I'm based in Minnesota. Now you guys are in uh, Kingsville, Ontario. Is that right? Yes. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. All right. which, part, uh, which part of Ontario is that? For our- well, if you look at Windsor... Detroit, where you guys would be a little more familiar with, but Windsor across the creek from Detroit. Um, we are on the most southern town right there in all of Canada. We are you know, the most southern inhabited town in all of Canada, right on Lake Erie. It's a beautiful, quaint little town, and um, that's where we're at, and that's where the uh, bird sanctuary is located. For those of us that are geograph- geographically challenged... I always find it funny that parts of Canada like that are actually south of us and that Windsor is actually south of Detroit. That's correct. I think, I think, uh, I think you have 11 states or so that are north of us. And just so you'll know, Brett, here, here, in, here in Canada, we all don't have just outhouses. We do have washrooms here, okay? <laughs> okay, good, good. All right. Well, I, let's talk migratory uh, bird research and the, the work that Jack Miner did because, uh, I mean, we wouldn't have the research that we have today without him, correct? Absolutely. So talk about his start and, and why he got interested in this in the first place. Well, Brett, Jack was born, believe it or not, in a place called Dover Center in Ohio in 1865. So Jack is an American, both American and Canadian. And when he was 13, his mother and father moved them to Kingsville, Ontario. Um, they just needed a better life. It was a tough time back in the, in the, the States and, uh, 
They came here, migra- migrated north um, for a better life. Again, when he was 13, he had uh, approximately three months of schooling. He didn't really fit into schooling. And then when he came to Canada, um, he just loved the great outdoors. And his dad said, go work or go to school. And he wanted to work. He, When he was 10 years old, he set trap lines up here, skunks and raccoons and possums and and, and muskrats to sell. Um, he was a bit of a market hunter. And um, it wasn't until 1904 that he started the bird sanctuary. And he had seven geese uh, with clipped wings that he purchased. And he wanted to bring the birds in. Again, he loved the outdoors. He loved hunting. And um, it took about four years for any geese to come back. And in 1908... Uh, to nine, uh, a pair, a flock of 11 geese came by and um, it all started from there. The next year there were 30 geese, the year after 350 geese. And from then to now, there's been millions of geese that have been through jack miners and ducks. And that's basically how it started in a, nut, in a nutshell. Um, he got into conservation uh, more so and did less hunting when he was hunting with his brother and a friend up in northern Quebec. They were moose hunting and his friend came out yelling out of the bush saying, I shot Jack, I shot Jack and, and his friend did. And uh, Jack Miner had to carry the 200 pound brother for miles and miles through the bush, paddled down a, a river up in Quebec to get him back to his train station, brought him back to Kingsville, Ontario where he laid his brother and that's a, but that's how Jack Miner really, really started. Very humble, interesting story. Became one of the greatest people on the continent. At what point, when he started doing that research, the banding, did he say, "This is this is going to be something very important. We need to continue doing this." I believe when 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 his his banding uh, is, is, is trying of the banding, you know, it took years, four years before any birds came here and some of the town people were criticizing him. And when finally a small group of birds came in and the next year it, it just became exponential. And then it got to a point where we had, th- he had thousands of birds coming into the sanctuary and he knew he was onto something. And then many media newspaper wires and, 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 and radio, uh, they started, were captured by, intrigued by what was going on and he became an overnight success and it didn't take that long um, for him to start very simple, very humble. And then he went right across the continents of North America. Okay. Speaking and preaching about what was doing. Um, It was said in, in within 30 years, he spoke to more audiences, more people in the audience than anybody in North America. Um, Tremendous story. What did, do you know what he learned off those early years when he, uh, the first geese that he banded, first birds that he banded? Do you know what research he got? Well, yeah, the, the first bird he banded, it was a mallard duck, by the way. Okay. Um, here. And it was, um, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was 1908 he banded the first duck. Um, it traveled down to South Carolina, and a doctor, a hunter doc, shot it in January 10th. And uh, so, so that was really the beginning of learning about the migratory path of birds. So it was, you know, in 1910 that he realized what was happening. So he banded the bird here and it went and it was taken in South Carolina. And that was the very beginning, okay, of, of the bird banding program. 
Wow. So banded. Tim, you're hundred percent right on that. Go ahead, Joe. I'd say Tim's hundred percent right on that. And uh, just to give you some ideas of numbers, we are well over a hundred thousand geese and a hundred thousand ducks that have now been banded here at the sanctuary. And we continue to ban now very recently, something the entire sanctuary is proud of. We are have now become affiliated with the Canadian wildlife service. So we are the only private banding um, association in all of Canada that is allowed to put our private bands on with the Canadian wildlife service band. So we are the only ones and that's the Jack Meyer sanctuary. So is, does the, do they do their own banding program then as well? Yes, they do. They do very much so. And uh, no different than you guys have the 1-800-327-BAND recoveries. Canadian Wildlife Service also works uh, with the American side of banding. And uh, it all works together. But like I said, we're very proud of that. Something new for us because up until recently, we were often told our bands would be removed because we were not qualified to do it, even though we did it first. Um, but So we went through the process and it, it was uh, quite a process, but we're very proud of where we're at now. So I think uh, Tim was telling me something about you're the only licensed bander, um, only private licensed bander then maybe? Correct. For, for Yes, in, in Canada, I'm the only private bander allowed to put bands on. <laughs> and, and, and Brett, Brett, I got to tell you something. You know, Joe and I work very, very close together, and we share this magnificent office um, where he's at right now. And you can't imagine when I got to go to work every day, I got to bow down and kiss the ground where he's at. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. How, what was the, uh, uh, the, the test like, what did you have to do to get a license for that? Well, it was, it took, it took a few years actually to do it. We had to first of all, establish our relationship with the Canadian wildlife service. Then we needed to prove to them that what we were doing was, uh, viable so that could be done the correct way. And we've had to change a little bit of our banding programs to fall within their guidelines and boundaries, which we now do. And so now when we band, we put one of their bands on and one of our bands on every goose that we come through with those guys. So wait a minute. So, so you guys pioneered the banding process and then you had to prove to them that you guys knew what you were doing. You are 100% right, yes. <laughs> That's great. All right. So you actually will put uh, uh, the uh, two bands on every time you band then? That is correct, yep. Uh, so we put a Canadian Wildlife Service band on and our band. And now when the Canadian Wildlife Service bands off of the Jack Miner Sanctuary, they only put on their band, not ours. Sure. It's just when they're on the sanctuary here. People freak out when they hear about Jack Minor bands, especially some of the older ones. Do the the ones that you're using now are they uh, look the same as the old ones, or have they have they changed it all over the years? Well, the original ones were all hand stamped uh, by Jack Minor, one letter at a time, one one number at a time. Our bands now come in approximately the same size, uh, but the, the serial number is already on the band. The Bible verse is already on the band. We do add the year ourselves, hand stamp the year. Then we roll them and have them ready for crimping to go on the birds. Uh, talk about putting the Bible verse on there. The Bible verse has well, been there essentially from the very beginning, but Tim, I'll let you take over on this. I'm going to see if I can find a band to show you guys on the camera while Tim's talking. I got a band right here, Joe, if you need it. Oh, if you got one perfect. I got a band right here. Um, Jack, Jack Miner, you know, due to his lack of education and being a real outdoorsman at a very early age, 
they said that you know he was he was not a real big thinker when he was young but when he could walk he would go to the bush and look to the skies and the heavens and he was just mesmerized when the birds were migrating north and south and i mean that was his church that was his religion that was his school okay and he had made a statement basically saying that you know because of what we have and see and experience in the great outdoors and i think all sportsmen can relate to this that there has to be a higher order a higher power which i think we all believe in okay or most of us whatever did you believe there is that higher purpose and that's why he would put the scripture on the bands i don't know if you can see there's there's you can't read the scripture here but this is a picture of the band there we go okay and on my computer back here one of my favorite bands is proverbs 29 verse 18. i think in 1999 they put that scripture and it says where there is no vision the people perish and one of the great stories back many, many, many decades ago was the um, Eskimo and the native Indian people. They shot a few of these bands. This is an older band. Okay, this is uh, 1952. And um, it says, walk among you. Okay, Revelations 28, verse 12, I believe. And one of the Eskimos, uh, many of them, that's how they found religion. And they couldn't believe that these geese were coming by and they would thought these were things from the heaven and God had created these, which he did. But that's how the northern um, native Eskimos and our, our, our native people learned about religion back then through the banding process that's from amazing. Jack Miner. That's amazing. It, it's really an unreal story. You told me uh, about his education uh, yesterday when we were talking about this interview, getting ready for this interview. Hi, Dan. I keep doing this. Let's bring uh, Tim back on here. And bye, Dan. Oh, did we lose? Oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> West Protection Program. There we go. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, what did, what did you say? He only had three months of education? That's correct. Um, is, 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 uh, he refused to go to school. Um, his father, um, at an early age, gave him the choice to go work in the small family brick company, brick making tile, okay, or go to school. And uh, at a very young age, um, he chose to go work with his dad and his couple family members in, in, in the clay tile factory. And then when they moved to Canada, then he lost education forever. The ironic thing about this whole thing, though, Brett, is even though he was such an uneducated man, you know, you know from a schooling point of view, he was probably he was 50 years ahead of his time. We can get into later some of the things that he did. But um, he, for a man who could not read or write, which he finally learned in his mid-30s, teaching Bible class at his Sunday school, his Sunday school students helped him read or write. He would tell stories, and then they would tell him how to narrate whatever. 
And it was then that he learned to do this. And then he went on his huge career speaking path that took him across North America and made him this legend that he is. I mean, to, to the tune of, and it's really interesting, you you all there in the States certainly know of the Isaac Walton League, mm-hmm. okay? At the request of 1927, Herbert Hoover asked Jack Minor to be the guest speaker at one of their dinners in Chicago at the ballroom. Never in the history had a Canadian been asked by a president to be the guest speaker. And there was 11, 1200 people there. He raised over a thousand dollars. That's how we funded the sanctuary through speaking engagements. Okay. So there alone at the request of your president of the United States, Mr. Hoover, president Hoover, he spoke there. Um, he was, or he was, he was given the OBE, which is the order of British empire by King George the sixth and the fifth, okay, for one of the greatest acknowledgements, anything that's ever been done in the British Empire at the time, Canada was part of that. So there were 400 million people then, and he was part, one of these people to give him this prestigious wow. honor. Hmm. So- and, and, and the funny thing is, Brett, it's not funny, but we could go on for weeks about all that he was done. He actually in 1927 helped pioneer. And this is very interesting. It has nothing to do with bird hunting, but he was such a big conservationist. He started the pollution movement in the great lakes. So he went to the, to the premier premiers of Ontario and Quebec, and then to your congressmen and senators of the great lake States, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, and New York to, get them to rally to pass legislation to really, really promote responsible use of the Great Lakes in 1927. And we know what happened in the 70s and 80s and early 90s with all the pollution in the Great Lakes. So that man was the only citizen ever, private citizen, to champion a project like that. And that's written by our Canadian government in a thank you letter in 1973. How does a man with three months of education go on to have a life like that? I mean, what, what motivated him to do all these things? Two words. And I think us sportsmen or us wildlife enthusiasts can, can resonate and relate to this. Passion and the love of what you believe in. So, and, and, and he must have been a likable guy. I mean, he, to, to be able to accomplish this, I mean, obviously he was a, a you know, he was very talented and, and, and remarkable in, in his accomplishments, but you have to be a like, you, I mean, you have to have some help to accomplish these things along the way. He, he had to have had a vision that a lot of people believed in along the way. Well, he did. And, and he had such, he had such powerful dynamic friends and supporters behind him that really helped propel him to the next level. Like you had people like Henry Ford who used to come to Kingsville all the time. And, and he put money into, into the sanctuary, Ty Cobb, Tyrus Cobb, you know, the, the Babe Ruth of the ball player. Okay. Um, you had, you had people like, like the Kellogg's family, the Eaton, 
the gentleman who started the Cadillac Corporation and on and on and on that just had a love for this man. Now, keep in mind, he was a very simple man, okay? And he spoke very simple yet eloquent. And so when he would go to these other places to speak and to educate these highest of, of educated people, he didn't have that. And that's really what resonated with a lot of them. I have a saying, Joe and I believe in, there's beauty and simplicity. And Jack was one of the most simple people in the world, but it was because of his simplicity that he, he, he created this worldwide love for what he was and the story that he could tell. Nobody could tell it like he could, and he was a very simple man. And I, I really believe to this day that that's what, one of the main reasons that helped propel him to his, his fame um, and success in the wildlife industry. It was interesting, his son, Manly, I mean, he had three sons, Ted, Jasper, and Manly. Okay, Ted died in an early age, but they were all part of the Jack Miner Foundation, and they worked very hard there. But, you know, we talk about the educational side. So his son, Manly, he quit school in grade eight to became his secretary hmm. and his help promote because Jack was traveling all over North America. He had, you know, some film people and um, staying home. Manly would take care of the business side of, of the foundation. And in the recent years after Jack died, it was really Manly who continued to do the marketing and promoting for Jack. And um, until I would say that, you know, after he died up until the early 70s, things just kept going north. I mean, up. And uh, it was a very successful time. So it was Manly who really helped propel Jack, especially after his death, uh, to make it what it was. Jack Miners, um, up until the late 60s, was the second biggest tourist trap next to Niagara Falls here in Kingsville, Ontario. Um, back in the heyday, there would be between five to 10,000 cars lined up on the roads here just to see the Jack Miner Sanctuary. Um, Did you say five when, to 10,000? That's correct. Wow. That's correct. And and if, if you look up on the line, um, this might be Joe here. If you look up, you, you, you should be able to find, you can't get in. Um, you should be able to see some pictures of the cars that are lined up. And I will send you, Brett, some old classic photos. Okay, I'll, I'll deliver them out to you so you can have them and use them, okay? Um, like it started in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, 60s. There would be thousands of school kids that would come here on a given day, okay? Um, we bust in tens of thousands a year, they used to, to see the sanctuary. Here's an interesting stat. Um, Jack Miner once was ranked by several um, syndicate newspaper magazines and along with a few of the U.S. ones as the top five people in North America next to Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, Lindbergh, Eddie Rickenbacker, who was a famous World War I ace. They ranked him number five. The Book of Knowledge. The Book of Knowledge is a group of scholars highly educated people that uh, rank people in a certain order, the most in, most uh, interesting people throughout the world. And Jack was ranked, Jack was ranked uh, one of the 20 people by the book of knowledge. 
decades ago. So Jack died in 1944, and obviously that was a pretty interesting time in the world. Um, how, how old was he when he died? Uh, 79. 79. And what was it like in the 19? Was he still working? How busy was it there in the 1940s? Yes, uh, the, 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 the sanctuary was extremely busy. Um, it just, uh, the, the, the population of the people that were coming were just increasing all the time. The war factor really didn't seem to bother that because of, of just, you know, a lot of things people couldn't do, but they could still get out and, and enjoy Mother Nature and the birds. And um, again, we'd have between five and 10,000 cars here on, on certain days to experience this. Jack was getting up in age a little bit, of course. He stayed home more, but he would entertain the people that would come and, and feed the birds with the people the best he could. Jack loved children. He just loved children. Um, you know, he had three sons, but he also lost two children at an early age, a boy and a son and a daughter, okay? And uh, he just, the pictures we have of him feeding the birds with the kids are are, are, are just extraordinary. And uh, so it was busy. It was a busy time back then. When you hear about the war effort here in the United States, production of a lot of different products that included metal stopped and everybody started making products for the war. Um, being that you're using metal, aluminum to, to, to make these bands, how, how many bands were being used and was there a shortage of aluminum or, or what happened during the war uh, when it came to uh, finding uh, materials to make bands? Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Brett. There was an extreme shortage of a lot of uh, raw materials during, you know, the early 40s, late 30s and early 40s. Um, but that did not stop the production of the aluminum bands. Um, actually, it increased. And um, one of the, one of, the uh, of your largest aluminum uh, manufacturing uh, companies in the States they supplied Jack Miner Bird Sanctuary with all the aluminum they needed in the bands. Wow. And then something happened in 1956 there that's pretty remarkable as well, well involving the UN? Yes. At the time, um, uh, they were stuck, I believe, in New York, so they were looking for some things to do, and the phone calls came into the Jack Miner Bird Sanctuary, and 33 delegates from the UN, UN their, interpreters, their interpreters, some of their support staff and their spouses came to Jack Miners to see what Jack Miners was all about. 33 delegates, and that had never been accomplished or completed in any little town anywhere at that time. And they came and they're, they're seeing the birds and feeding the birds in the sanctuary? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I got some pictures of that too, Brett, that I will, I will, I will send to you. Great. Um, and then around the same time, here's another interesting thing. Um, we have pictures of, again, right around that same time, uh, generals and commanders of your U.S. armed forces, along with the commanding general of the Chinese Army, General Lei, I believe, came here to feed the ducks and geese. Chinese Communist Army. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's interesting. 
What what was that? Oh, Joe's back. Hey, Joe. Oh, yes, how, sir. How you doing? Uh, well, hopefully I last a little longer than last time, to be honest. <laughs> it's all right. No worries. Um, what what was the what did the sanctuary look like? Like how how big was it? How many birds were in it? And uh, how does it look today? I don't know who wants to answer that question. Um, but what what's what's happened with the sanctuary over the years? Well, I, I can tell you from my end of the sanctuary in regards to the grounds end of it, uh, many, many things have happened from back in the day, especially in the 40s and 50s, when cars were lined up from one concession to the next, from mile crossroad to the next mile crossroad, and people were everywhere, and our grounds were, were literally overrun with people. It was absolutely awesome back in the heyday. Uh, now we don't have as many visitors as we used to have, but we are holding uh, numerous amounts of birds. Not as many as we once held, and I apologize, I'm just getting settled in here. Uh, not as many as we used to hold, but there's a few different factors on that. One of the factors is no-till farming, so geese aren't pushed in like they used to be pushed in. Uh, the second factor, in my belief, is that hunting pressure isn't there, where this was a safe area for them. Now there's lots of areas in Essex County where there is no hunting pressure, so they're not pushed into this area. And the third one is a lot of people have taken up to feeding nuisance geese. And I call nuisance geese because that's how I refer to them. They're non-migratory birds. So some of our non-migratory birds will set and stay a while at golf courses along riversides and all that other kind of stuff, as opposed to being pushed here to eat because they're being fed in other places. So we're still holding lots of birds. We're still continuing banding. But Tim's main goal is to bring it back to the way it was in the 50s and 60s and even late 40s, where people are lined up once again to see the sanctuary uh, from miles around. Speak to the banding over the years and how many, uh, you know, how many birds are being banded today? Uh, is it more than it has been? Is, was there peaks and valleys? or How has that process gone over the years? Well, in the time I've been here, when I first started here, Kirk and I used to band about 2,000 geese a year and 500 ducks. Um, over the years, it kind of evened itself out. We're less than 2,000 to 1,200 of each. And now we ban more ducks um, than we do geese at this point. Hmm. So we, we are doing a re-banding, relocating uh, goose banding program with Canadian Wildlife Service. So our goose numbers are starting to come back up. But uh, like I said, those other three influences on the birds being pushed in like they used to be have changed our banding also. Interesting. Here in Minnesota... When you think of Canada geese, there's a history of they were almost completely gone from the state, and there were uh, there's a there was a small population near Rochester, Minnesota, and there was actually a small population near Hutchinson as well. These are the the resident giants, I guess they might be considered. Um, and then all the, now our population is 250, 300,000 geese or something like that in the state. It's, it's, it's crazy. Was there a time there where the population was, was so low that it was rare to see a goose? Or was there historically always a lot of Canada geese at least migrating through that area? Well, it, it, since Jack Miner started the sanctuary, there's always been birds migrating through. The, and I already explained about them stopping here, but generally in the area, we're still holding lots of birds and lots of birds still do migrate through the sanctuary. Yes. All right. And talk about some of the, some of the, some of your favorite banding moments that you've experienced. You've, you've been doing it there for 30 years. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, 
I, I've had some great, great opportunities. We do a lot of work with the local school children, uh, the Jack Minor Public School. They come down and help us band, so it's always a lot of fun. Um, we do, I do now teach part of the program for the banding for the Canadian Wildlife Service, just small sections of it during their course, so that's always a lot of fun, um, especially when you watch people to come in that aren't really aware of what they're walking into. And to get bit by a goose um, can be quite interesting. <laughs> so it's, uh, and people can be bit in interesting areas. And, and I think I said that the correct way. So it's, uh, it's, it's good laughs that have been done. But uh, a story that, that I'll tell you this, and this goes back years ago when I used to live on the sanctuary. My brother and I, my brother's working here too at the time, we were having our lunch. And way back in the day, emails were not a big thing. Everybody called in their band recoveries. So when somebody called in, I needed some information. I needed to know. Was a duck or a goose? Um, I need to know the serial number. I need to know the year. I need to know the Bible verse. And I also need to know where the bird was shot and who shot it. And I always would say, please say and spell all of this information or give me the numerical part of it. If, for the reason that sometimes it's easy to spell somebody's wrong name wrong. And for Senator Osterwick, we want it to be right. So we start off with this. This uh, southern gentleman calls in, and we got it on speakerphone having our lunch. I asked him the serial number. I got the serial number. I asked him the year. I got the year. I got the bioverse. Then I said, I need the location. I need to know where you shot the bird. I didn't say location. I need to know where you shot the bird, so say it and spell it. And usually I come out, and somebody will say, well, it's like Mississippi Falls right on the corner or something and something, and they say it and spell it. Well, this old boy, and I'm, I'm kind of eating my soup. And he says, I shot that bird in the head. That'll be H-E-A-D. I shot him in the head. I just about spit my soup right on the table. And I'm trying to shut off speakerphone because I couldn't stop laughing. And my brother's dying across the table from me. So that is that is the funniest story I have in regards to Dan. Now, let me tell you a really cool story. And this just happened yesterday. And this is, uh, we did talk about banning with his family. But we're in COVID shutdown like the rest of the world kind of is and isn't right now. And um, there's a, a gentleman and his family there just feeding the geese. Our museum and everything's closed because of COVID. So we struck up a conversation and uh, him and his family are here for three weeks uh, with a business, a business thing he's doing. And uh, he's from Zimbabwe and he heard about Jack Miners and he wanted to come down and visit it. So we had a really nice visit with him. We kept our distances. We wore our face pieces. But uh, it, and that just happened yesterday. Wow. I, I thought you were going to tell me he recovered a, a band in Zimbabwe for a minute there. Well, his buddies might if he takes his band in his pocket home and puts it in the right location. <laughs> Who knows where that could go. But, uh, what, is, uh, what are some of the, you know, like the, the furthest away uh, you've heard of for band recoveries or uh, some, of the, some of the crazy locations you've heard of? Well, I've heard a lot of, a lot of locations. Um, they always seem to majority Hudson James Bay down to the Carolinas. We, we do get ducks uh, down in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, we've had duck recoveries in Cuba. And then we've had goose recoveries, not even our in our flyway, just in a whole different flyway. And it could be storms. It could be they just happen to hook up with another group of migratory birds while they were migrating. So it's, it's hard to say how they all get in their locations, but there's been all kinds of locations. And a lot of the stories we get in regards to bands and locations are, and I'm using locations as a simple way here, where somebody will buy a house or they inherit a grandma and grandpa's house and they just happen to be looking whatever moving stuff and behind the wash machine they found a band from 1923 and 
they would like information on us. So I guess technically that is a location of where it's been found. But uh, <laughs> those are always some really great stories. You know, I live in an old farmhouse right now. I'm going to go move the washer and dryer right <laughs> as soon as we as soon as we get done here. Um, for sure. Well, you banded the 100,000th bird the other day there at the Jack Miner uh, Sanctuary. What was it? And was it was it a special cage? Did you put a special band on it or anything? It was. Uh, so their goose band that was actually done a little bit ago. It was it was brought it put on our local newspaper. And uh, other than that, it was just a regular band that just happened to have the number 100,000 on it, but it went on a goose. Hmm. So is, is somebody's not going to win a car or uh, a case of the bats no, or something? No. If, uh... I mean, if you want to sponsor that, I, <laughs> the 100, I mean, the 110,000 bird, I, I, if you guys want to sponsor that and at least give us a T-shirt or something, <laughs> we can make note of it. <laughs> That'd be great. All right. You, you, you know. Brett, Brett, you talk about banding, and, and Joe was part of this when um, I used to represent Safari Club International in the States for all those years. Um, I would travel around, and uh, part of my lectures and speaking duties were to try to, you know, inspire our, our audiences to dig deep in their pockets. And um, I would take and get, I'd go to our local winery, and uh, if you can see this, bottle, it's a bottle of Pelion and wine. Pelion is the most southern island in all of Canada. It's out here about 18 miles. We got the best walleye fishing in the world. My family used to own the ruins of the old Pelion Island Villa there. So I would tell the story about Pelion Island and my mom and my grandpa were born there. And so there was kind of close with a Jack Minor thing. And I would take these bottles of wine. I'd take a $20 bottle of wine. I'd buy at the local Pele Island retail store. And I would glue the band to the box. And I would go to various um, uh, fundraisers. I'll never forget I was in the Bayous somewhere down in, not the Bayous, but I was in uh, Georgia. We were starting up a chapter and it was a pretty unique chapter. And um, uh, some well-heeled people that were there, very exotic private hunt club in the middle of a swamp. And I remember getting $1,000 for a Jack Minor bird band because of a $20 bottle of wine and telling the story. And near the end of my tenure, that word would spread out across North America. I might be in Alaska one weekend, Miami the next. And everybody was asking for this bottle of Pele Island band and a Jack Minor goose band and it was fetching crazy amounts of money to um, probably one of the last two years I was working for SCI, um, Kurt and Joe, when I would travel the weekends to travel to a fundraiser throughout North America, they would always give me a duck and a goose band to give away to some special people. And I can tell you that I have given a Jack Miner goose band and I've had dinner with the, your past president of the United States, George Bush Sr. I worked with a gentleman named Norman Schwarzkopf, General Schwarzkopf, oh. quite often. You've heard of him. Storming I got Norman. Picture. Yeah, mm. yeah. Joe's got a picture with him. And I, again, I had the privilege of working with him a lot with our organization, giving him a band. Um, Chuck Yeager, Charlton Heston, who's from Michigan. Now, they've all unfortunately passed on. But we got to give some pretty neat people some pretty neat pieces of aluminum. Hmm. Hmm. Um. 
do you think that, I mean, obviously it was a $20 bottle of wine. So that speaks to the, the weight that the Jack Miner name has. He tell, tell the story about, um, giving the radio address from his house. Yeah. Um, in 19, let me get this right here. Um, bear with me here. I just, I want to get it right here. 1936, uh, Mackenzie King, if you look in the history books, prime minister of Canada, um, knowing that no other Canadian, um, had ever received such recognition in the field of wildlife conservation management, whatever, uh, chose Jack Miner to give the round the world address. And it was King George V of Britain who was doing that. So Prime Minister Mackenzie King asked him to do that. And it was kind of cute because um, at that time, uh, they installed two lines to the old homestead, which is still there and part of a museum. They installed two lines for one simple reason, in case one did not work, something like our internet these days, these, you know, at times. So they did two. And Jack Miner spoke around the world to hundreds of millions of people, and they received letters um, and thank yous and just requests from 65 countries around the world. Some of them they didn't know, they couldn't interpret, but they knew they were where they were from due to the stamp on the uh, on the uh, envelopes that were sent. Wow. Huh. And he did a lot of speaking when he died in 1944. There were. Uh, 4,000 different requests for him to come That's speak? Correct. That's correct. 4,000 that they were, uh, I believe, registered and documented, um, but he couldn't do it anymore. And again, that is how they raised the funds uh, to support the Jack Miner Foundation. Back then, it cost 40 some to $50,000 a year, which is, which is a, a heap of a lot of money back then. Now, um, I believe our budget, we're almost 500000 this year. Um, Joe, you can attest to this. I think it costs what almost $500 a day to feed the geese during peak season. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. About $500 a day. It could go up, it could go down by a little bit, but we, uh, we feed a lot of corn and we've recently changed over doing a lot of buckwheat also. So we're, uh, hmm. our, our food cost is always tremendous. What, what do the grounds look like right now then? Is it, uh, you know, what's there? There's a, uh, is the house there? Is the museum there? Or is it a, is it a big pond? Is there uh, crop fields around there? What all is there? The sanctuary is about 420 acres, give or take a little bit. We have about 21 acres in corn that we grow and pick for ourselves. We have another 30 acres of local farmer grows corn for us. Uh, in the front, we have two large hills, a gazebo on top, get used a lot for wedding and viewing of um, ducks and geese. And that's our main feeding pond out front with a moat all the way around it. Hmm. And then on the other side, we have the children's feeding pond, which is beside our museum and the big homestead, which is now also a museum. So the, the sanctuary's come a long ways. The newest thing for us has been our trails, our trail system. Yeah, there's our gazebo. Our trail system, and um, it's, I guess if I convert it over to American, it's going to be about three and a half miles long, and it gets a tremendous use right now, so we're very blessed to have that up and operating also. Hmm. I want to ask you about the Bible verses again. How many Bible verses have been used, and how did those get picked? 
the original Bible verses were all picked by Jack Miner or maybe some of his very close friends as they had other friends that helped stamp bands. There was five Bible verses that were normally used, but especially back when hand stamping was how everything was done as opposed to, I'm going to call it commercialized stamping. Then every now and then there would be an odd verse that was thrown in there as, as a commemorative to one of his friends or a special something that meant a lot to him in his life on that particular day. So there are those very rare, rare ones out there, but there was five main ones. Okay. Well, it's a fascinating story. Uh, obviously, he was, uh, he was quite the human being, and his legacy is, is living on. What is the future for the foundation, and uh, do you have anything coming up? I mean, obviously, COVID has kind of put a lot of things on hold, I'm sure, but is there anything planned for the future for, the, for, the, you know, for people that would want to travel and come, come see the place? What we're doing now, Brett, um, and again, since I'm, I'm kind of in here with this organization, um, we, we've realized that in this modern day, things are changing and things have changed. Um, we, we, we can't remain the status quo and stay where we're at. We've done some tremendous things lately, like we've had to rebuild a, a beautiful fence that Henry Ford had put up, but it was just falling apart. We've redone the ponds, some of the ponds, but looking forward, uh, progressive thinking, there's some things that we need to do. And as we speak, we're putting together a tremendous um, marketing package with a, a great company called media duo that we believe is going to help propel us into the future. We know everything these days, you know, it costs money to keep things going and it, it's not a cheap venture. And we've got some big pictures, some bigger bigger thinking pictures down the road from, from expanding these trails to making them bigger and better because it's just a, People are enjoying this. It's a like a little nature theme park. Um, we want to be able to expand some of the things on the grounds. We've talked about um, possibly a, a Jack Minor International Wildlife Museum down the road to showcase showcase um, certain things. I, I would suggest, and, and I don't know if Brett, you had done this. You look at what Jim Shockey did out in Vancouver, uh, his museum, the Hand of Man. That's that's pretty special. And looking forward to to develop products, uh, just the bigger thinking things like Jack Miner did. That will be key paramount to the success of this organization to to think big like he did down the road. Well, uh, I really appreciate you guys joining us here today. I'm going to bring Dan on for this, too, since we got all four of us in here today. Hey, Dan. Um, This sounds like a place that anybody that is passionate about waterfowl. Uh, hunters, bird watchers, anybody that really uh, is fascinated by that. I mean, the research and data really is what interests me. I mean, I love to hunt. I love to eat waterfowl. I, I love to take photos of them. But learning about where they go, where they've been, how old they are, is some of the most fascinating biology research, I think, uh, that, that you can find out there and to think that this, this is, basically, this is the guy, I mean, this is the guy that, that started it, right? I mean, what, what, what research, uh, when it comes to migratory waterfall was being done before this, was there, was there anything out there? Uh, no, Brett, there wasn't. I mean, when you look at some of the famous forefathers in the conservation industry, look at Ding Darling, who was friend of Jack Myers, Aldo Leopold. Okay. James Audubon, your great famous Teddy Roosevelt, okay? I mean, these are all tremendous paradigms, you know, American paradigms. And and um, if you look at the history, and part of my job right now is trying to take thousands of, 
of, of papers that have been written in, in books and to condense it into a small, small reading material. That's a bit of a prodigious task, but I'm having fun with this. But to answer your question, he, 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 he is the man. He is the God, the founding God. And I think we've just proven this by the leaders of the world honoring him. Okay. With all he did, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one final thing. And I think all, all our American brothers and sisters uh, south or north of here um, can, 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 can appreciate um, Jack Miner was instrumental, instrumental in, in, in starting um, to organize and influence over 200 wildlife refu refugee sanctuaries around the world, some as far as Russia. But a really neat little story um, was um, back in the early 40s um, on the request of Thomas Edison's wife, who was very close with Jack. Um, I think she was closer with the Miner family than Thomas was. Um, she had requested, at the request of President Hoover, had asked Jack to fly down uh, to the Daytona Beach Auditorium because the American, you know, the American people down in Florida were starting to develop a little, uh, a little, little sanctuary. And uh, President Hoover asked him to go speak and get the audience riled up. Now, you got to give credit to the Audubon Society that pulled this one off. But we like to think here in Canada that a good old Canuck American had something to do with a place called the Florida Everglades. Ah. Wow. <laughs> Man. Well, what else? Can people do? Can they donate, or how else can they get involved? Is there any type of, of memberships, or you know what what can people do out there? Um, what we're doing right now is part of our, our new marketing package again, which has never been done. Um, we're going to be starting a, a membership based program, so we hope we get every every non hunter hunter. It doesn't matter; just you know, outdoor enthusiast involved. It'll be inexpensive, no different than if you belong to your Lions Club or your Kinsmen or your Ducks Unlimited or Turkeys, Pheasants, whatever. Okay, that type of stuff. So we're going to be starting that. We do have on our web, you can go and donate to this organization. And that's really how, you know, we had the money to do this over the years through generous, substantial donate donations from, from very influential people. But if some people send in $5 or 50,000. It didn't matter, but you will be hearing more of this in the near future. Trust me on that one. Very cool. All right. Well, jackminer.ca is the website where people can, can find out uh, more. Uh, Tim Dobson, Joe Mermulen, and of course, Dan Amundsen. Uh, guys, I really appreciate, appreciate the time. It's uh, such cool work that you guys are doing up there. Keep up the good work. Good luck with everything in the future. And thanks for the time today on the show. Thank you, Brett. We'll be talking to you soon, okay? Whoop, I had you muted there, Joe. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Thank, thank you guys for your time, too. Thank you. All right, if you like this podcast, make sure you leave us a review. Like it, share it, subscribe to it, send it to your friends. We appreciate it. And find out more about us at NorthAmericanWaterfowl.com. This has been a Fish on Forever production.